All right, if you'll open your Bibles, please, to the book of First Peter, chapter 1. First Peter, chapter 1. Going to finish chapter 1 today. How about that? Seven sermons, I know, like throwing a party. The, uh, the, the, uh, the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, they studied the, the Talmud, if you're familiar with that, sort of a long collection of Jewish writings. It's, uh, them debating different things about the scriptures and whatnot and whatever. But it's really, it's like, it's massive. And it's, if you've ever looked at a page of it, it's just, it's like so compact and tight that when they finish studying a page, they actually throw a party. It's like that intense. I kind of feel that way. Getting to the end of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Actually going to dig it into chapter 2. Okay? Going to get, get started on chapter 2 today as well. But we're in this great book. And just as sort of a way of, of reminding us of kind of where we are, resetting the, the landscape. We remember here that Peter is writing to um, churches, Christians, in five provinces that were located in the country that we know today as the country of Turkey. And they were persecuted. Right? They were persecuted churches. We don't exactly know the specific nature of their persecution, but Peter has referenced already several times in chapter 1 the many kinds of grievous trials that they were enduring, trials that were testing their faith and that were affecting their faithfulness to Christ and to one another. Peter spent the first 12 verses reminding these Christians of what God had done for them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, He had chosen them to be His people. He had sanctified them by the blood of Christ. He caused them to be born again to a living hope. He had reserved for them an imperishable, undefiled and unfading inheritance that He would give to them at the consummation of the age. He was testing them and strengthening their faith to give them assurance that they would indeed inherit eternal life. He made them participants in the divine drama that he was producing, a drama that both the prophets and the angels could only anticipate and observe. So Peter here is reminding them of all these great and wonderful things that God has been doing for them. He reminds these weary and discouraged believers that God had done so much for them in Christ. And by reminding them of God's grace and goodness, he hopes to encourage them in keeping the faith no matter the consequences. That's the goal. Keep the faith. Endure. Remain steadfast, no matter what you face. But Peter then transitions in verses 13 to 21 to encourage these Christians in their faithfulness. The verses 1 through 12 are really setting the foundation. This is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. In verses 13 to 21, Peter is exhorting these Christians. Stay faithful. Be faithful. And he reminds them that so long as we live in this world, we will have hardship. But the Christian response to many grievous trials is steadfast faithfulness. And to this end, then, Peter moves to instruct and exhort the church to to enduring faithfulness. And we saw over the past two Sundays that Peter gave the churches here three commands, three things that they were to do, action words, action items. One, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed at the time of Jesus Christ. Put your hope fully, set your hope fully on the salvation that God has promised you that will come at the end of the age. Number two, he says, be holy as God is holy. 
Be holy as God is holy. In all of your conduct, in all that you do, be holy as God is holy. And then third, in verse 17, he says, conduct yourselves with godly fear. Conduct yourselves with godly fear. Very much like that second, second exhortation to be holy in all your conduct. So in these imperatives, Peter connects our identity and our calling as God's holy people with the holy way in which we are to live. But what is missing in these commands is the clear application of how we are to live in a holy way. He is in verses 13 to 21 really sort of dumping upon them the command. Be holy. Conduct yourselves in godly fear. Set your hope. But he doesn't really flesh out how exactly that is to be, what that's to look like. How to apply that exhortation. But, what we're going to see beginning in verse 22 of chapter 1 into chapter 2 verse 3, and what will be elaborated on much more throughout the rest of the letter, is how we apply that command to be holy. And indeed in, verses, in verse 22, and really in this passage, verse 22 to, to, to chapter 2 verse 3, Peter gives us the, the main application, the overarching application of what it means to be holy. How do we live holy lives? How do we conduct ourselves with godly fear? There's sort of one task that is preeminent. There is one task that is sort of the, the, the umbrella for everything else, and that is to love one another. So today we're going to consider the holy task of loving one another. And we will discover that when we love one another, we will fulfill God's command to be holy. Let's look at our passage, chapter 1. Beginning in verse 22, I'm going to read our passage. We're going to finish chapter 1, then go into chapter 2, up to verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of, the gra- of grass. The grass withers and the flower fall- falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So I'm going to try to outline this passage into three parts, and I'm going to again kind of use the outline sort of as a way of entering in is by asking questions. So question number one, what does, it, what does holy living look like? What does holy living look like? Number two, why ought we to love one another? And then number three, how do we love one another? So first, What does holy living look like? What does holy living look like? Holy living consists, Peter says, of loving one another. And again, I said this last week, and I would say it again. This is a way of understanding how to interpret the Scriptures, as a way of hermeneutics, which is sort of the principles of interpretation we use in, in, um, in interpreting the Bible. Whenever we... And the letters are like this. Paul probably more so than Peter, but the letters generally... They can get kind of convoluted, right? They, they string out over several verses at one sentence and a lot of, a lot of prepositional phrases and participial phrases that kind of get lost as to what the, the main idea is. So whenever we're reading the letters or reading a paragraph, the, the goal of a sentence or the goal of a paragraph is to find the main idea. And so in this passage, the main idea comes in verse 22. It is the, it is the verb love. That's the heart of what Peter is drilling down on in this passage. That's the key takeaway. 
What does Peter want his readers to do? He wants them to love. Love who? One another. He wants them to love one another. That's the main thought. That's the main idea of this passage. Now, loving one another is the chief command of the New Testament. In fact, I would even go so far as to say it's the chief command of Scripture. You'll remember the confrontation of the Pharisees and Sadducees with Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. That when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great command in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, all the law and uh, depend all the law and the prophets. So again, Jesus is quoting when they ask him, what's the greatest command? He's quoting the, the, the command from the Old Testament, from Leviticus 19.18. And he says that the second great command of Scripture is to love your neighbor or to love one another. He also says in that passage that the first great command is to love God, right? Love God, love your neighbor. Those two things are two sides of the same coin. One cannot truly love God unless he loves his neighbor, and loving one's neighbor is the chief way that we love God. So Jesus says that the essence of Scripture, the essence of all of God's commandments, are to love God and to love one another. Jesus confirmed that command and he prioritized it, giving it new emphasis on the night before his crucifixion. In John chapter 13, at the Last Supper, Jesus said, John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the command that Jesus gives here is really not in a sense new, in the sense that it has never been given before. It was a key emphasis of the Old Testament. But Jesus reinvigorates this command. And he gives it fresh priority as the way his disciples are to relate to one another. It is that attribute of loving one another that unites them and defines them, right? Their love for one another is to unite them together as a, as a people, to, is to define them as a, as a body, this command to love one another. So we need to understand that in this context, Peter is not abruptly changing subjects in his letter, right? We've gone from, you are holy, be holy as the Lord your God is holy, conduct yourselves with godly fear. And there are some people who think that sort of in, the, in verse 22, you see that paragraph division that Peter's like putting on the brakes and shifting his subject, but I don't think that's what's happening here. Peter is framing this command to love one another in the context of God's commands for us to be holy and to conduct ourselves with godly fear. It is after saying these things that Peter gives this command to love one another. And so Peter here sees an intimate connection between holy living and loving one another. And we oftentimes see those two things as sort of diametric opposites, don't we? We see them as two realities or two attributes that are opposed to one another or that are in tension with one another. That these two things, holiness and love, cannot coexist at the same time. But we only need to look to God, our Father, to see that, a, that the holy God is a loving God. And that the God who is love is also holy. I think we see no better example of this in the Scripture than in Israel's sojourn at Mount Sinai after the Exodus. 
Remember that story as, as God had brought Israel out of Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai. It was there that He formed the covenant with them, that He cast His love upon His people. One of the most beautiful passages of Scripture is in Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6, where God says to His people, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My commandments, keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What a beautiful passage. God confessing His love for us. All that I've done for you, look how I've, how I've been gracious to you, how I, how I bore you up, how I brought you out of your slavery, how I brought you to Myself, how I'm entering into this covenant with you, how I'm making you My treasured possession among all the peoples, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We see there the, the manifest love of God, the fullness of God's love for Israel. But this God with whom Israel now lives in covenant relationship, loving covenant relationship, also immediately revealed Himself to them in the terror of His holiness. Go further in that chapter in Exodus. Exodus 19, verses 18 and 19. And then also into chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up and this, like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. This God who had just earlier that day had said to His people, I love you. I bore you up on eagles' wings. You're my treasured possession. You're my holy people. It's the same God who descended to them on the mountain in smoke and in fire in such a way that it was so terrifying to the Israelites that they said, please keep the Lord away. Moses, you represent us. You speak for us on our behalf. So we see these two things coming together in the very person and nature of God. His love and His holiness. God loved His people so much that He redeemed them from Egypt. He cleansed them from their sin. He inaugurated a new covenant with them. But this God who loved them was a holy God who manifested His perfect holiness to them and called them to a life of holiness as well. So we need to understand that holiness and love are not opposed. Our culture wants to see these two things as opposites. That you can't be holy and loving at the same time. But what we need to understand is that the Scriptures would teach us and what Peter's teaching us here in chapter 1 is that these two things, holiness and love, are integrally connected together. And they are manifested not merely simultaneously at the same time, but in cooperation with each other. So it's not just that we are both holy and loving at the same time, it's that these two things work together. You can't truly be holy unless you are loving, and you can't really be loving unless you are holy. Both these things are not just simply necessary, they must work together. John writes in his letter, 1 John chapter 3, verses 10-12, to 12, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Peter, I mean, sorry, John, saying the same thing that Peter is saying, essentially. That for us to be God's people, if we're going to be living out the way that God would have us to live in the midst of these fiery trials, is that we're to be both holy and loving at the same time, that these two things must be working together. Remember that Peter has reminded us back in chapter 1, verse 2, that we've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit through the shed blood of Christ. And the word sanctify means to make holy. We understand that God has made us holy by His work of salvation, and we are now to reflect that holiness in all of our conduct. And the chief way, Peter says, that we express the holiness that we've been given, the very holiness by which God Himself is holy, is to love one another. So I think what Peter's doing here, he's going to give us very practical, detailed applications of this, but the chief one to see here at the very beginning is the fact that if you're going to be a holy people, you're going to have to love one another. This is the first practical outworking of a holy life. That if we're going to be holy as God is holy, if we're going to possess a proper fear of God, we will love one another. Now what's interesting to me here is again, remember the context. Peter here is counseling a persecuted church going through fiery trials, going through severe persecution. And what he is saying to them is that in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of your fear, do the fundamental thing. Do the thing that is basic to ordinary Christianity. Do what ordinary Christians everywhere, in every situation, ought to do. Peter's not here providing special instructions on how to how to endure persecution. He simply tells them to do what Jesus told all his followers to do, and that is to love one another. So no matter how many trials they face, and no matter how severe those trials are, Peter says, love one another. That's it. Look to do that. Look to love one another in the midst of your trials. And if you do that, you will be holy in all your conduct. I think sometimes we do overthink the Christian life. I think sometimes when we go through problems, that when we go through difficulties, we're looking for that sort of that, that spiritual silver bullet, right? We're looking for that nugget of, of targeted wisdom that will get me out of that trial, get me out of that circumstance. We're looking for that one thing that if we can just do that, all our problems will be solved. It's as if that we put our hope then in special wisdom, in the spiritual silver bullet. But Peter would say just the opposite. He offers here no hope to them that their trials will ever dissipate or disappear. As discouraging as that may sound, you need to understand that you may never extricate yourself from your earthly problems. But Peter's word of encouragement here is, don't worry about that. Just do what God has called you to do and love one another. How many times in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our difficulties, we're looking for a way out. We're, we're hyper-focused on that situation, that problem, the solution to that problem, when instead we need to simply be doing the basic thing that Scripture calls us to do, which is to love one another. Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary on 1 Peter, says that Peter does not summon a suffering church to anything other than the mainstream Christian life to love one another, and the flames of such love should not be extinguished by the flood of persecution. 
So no matter what trial you are presently in, I would encourage you to look to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And by loving one another, you will be working out that command to be holy as God is holy. You will reflect the holiness of God in your life. So what ought we to do? We're to love one another. Secondly, second question here. Why ought we to love one another? Why ought we to love one another? Well, we could say that we ought to love one another because we are commanded to love one another. And that would be true. We are commanded to love one another. Jesus, we saw in Matthew 22, said that that is the second greatest commandment, right? That was a command. Jesus gave it as a new command to his disciples, John 13. We read that passage as well. The New Testament often describes this thing to love one another as a commandment or a law or an ordinance. It must be obeyed. It's something that we're expected to do. There's an expectation, an obligation to do that. Even the phrase itself, as Peter states it here in verse 22, takes the imperative mood, the command mood, right? The imperative is the command. Adam, go close the door. That's a command, right? Jeff, go and prepare, clean up the, the communion table. Those are commands. Those are things that there's an expectation to do. And so the command is given to us to love one another. And so it is right to say that loving one another is our duty. That it is an obligation that God has placed upon us. And that alone is sufficient reason to love others. And lest we we be discouraged by that, or lest we become overwhelmed by that command, John encourages us in 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. The command to love one another is not burdensome because it is a command from God. He has given it to us to do. He has given us the grace. He's given us the resources to be able to do it. It is not a burdensome command. But Peter doesn't really highlight that aspect of that here. He doesn't really bring this out as a, it sort of fleshes that out more and more about the obligation, the duty to love one another. He gives us a different reason altogether. And the reason that he gives to us, the reason why we ought to love one another, is because we've been saved. We're to love one another because we've been saved. Because we've been saved, we ought to love one another. And Peter illustrates our conversion with two metaphors that helps us to see the need and urgency to love one another. So Peter, at first, gives us the the metaphor, the illustration, in verse 22, of purification he speaks of our conversion as purification we've been we've been purified he says look at verse 22 having been having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love love one another earnestly from a pure heart this idea of purification peter is speaking about a our spiritual cleansing the soul that he references there in verse 22 is is that part which sort of defines us it makes us who we are as an individual. It's the, the essence of our being. It's the core of our being, the, the, the person that we really are. So by speaking of our soul here in this context, Peter is highlighting our humanity. And Scripture teaches us that our souls are inherently wicked, that our souls are stained by original sin, that they're possessed by evil desire, that they harbor every wicked imagination, that they look for every opportunity to put our evil thoughts and desires into action. But Peter says our souls have been purified or cleansed or cleaned. 
Our sins have been washed away. And the stain of our sin has been blotted out. We are spiritually clean. Or again, to use Peter's word from verse 2 of chapter 1, we are sanctified. Now, how have our souls been purified? Peter says our souls have been purified, he says in verse 22, by your obedience to the truth. Now, Peter there is not talking about a works of righteousness, or works righteousness. He's not talking about our attempts to be holy by our good deeds, that somehow if we've done enough good and holy things that our souls have been purified. We have to kind of go back to the letters of Paul, particularly in Romans. When Paul uses the phrase obedience to the truth or obedience of faith several times in his letters to refer to our response to the gospel. In other words, when we heard the gospel proclaimed, we obeyed its call through the aid of the Holy Spirit. And by that, we repented of our sins and we trusted in Christ. In other words, again, the gospel was preached. We, we responded to that call. We obeyed that call by submitting ourselves to Christ, by repenting of our sins and trusting in Him. And so Peter is using that expression in a similar way. We have obeyed the truth by trusting in Christ. It is faith in Christ that brings salvation. The Holy Spirit applies the benefits of, of Christ's redemptive work to our lives. And, and by trusting in Him, by putting our faith in Him, the Spirit does that work so that we are saved. It is only through Christ's sacrifice that Peter's mentioned, again in verse 2, verse 19, only by that sacrifice are our souls cleansed. But now that our souls are cleansed, Peter says that we are freed and that we are instructed to love one another. So the new bent of our purified hearts leads us to love because, again, holiness and love must coexist in the life of the believer just as they harmoniously abide in the character of God. So when our hearts have been purified, only when they've been purified, are we able to do that command? Peter is writing this, connecting these two things together. Because our souls have been purified, we love one another. Peter makes that connection clear in the, in the second part of that phrase in verse 22, that clause, the first part of verse 22. When he says the purpose for which our hearts have been, or our souls have been purified. Why have our souls been purified? He says, for a sincere brotherly love. In other words, Peter says that not only do holiness and love coexist in the life of the believer, but that God's sanctifying work in our lives through purifying our souls is for the express purpose of loving one another. In other words, why did God save you? Why did God purify your souls? He purified your souls for the purpose of loving one another. God saved you so that you would love your brothers and sisters in Christ. The second metaphor, the second illustration that Peter uses in verse 23 to speak of our conversion is that of a new spiritual birth. In verse 23, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. He's referring there to our new spiritual birth. He has already reminded us of this back in chapter 1, verse 3. Peter had said there that God, our Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And now he reminds us of that truth here in verse 23. Since you have been born again. And just as we have said, again, back in, what was it, seven weeks ago in verse 3, 
We want to say again here that the emphasis is not upon what has happened to us as much as it is on what God has done for us. The emphasis here is on God, is not on our being born passively, but on God's begetting, God's birthing, God's bringing us, fathering us into this world. We are not simply born, but God begat us. He fathered us. He is responsible for our procreation. He is responsible responsible for bringing us into the new spiritual life in which we now live. And how is it that God begat us? How did God beget us? How were we born again? Well, just as a father's seed is responsible for procreating, God's seed has resulted in our spiritual birth. And what is that seed? Well, Peter says it is God's word. And then we see that Peter kind of elaborates on the nature of that word. He makes a statement about that word so as to make a statement about the nature of our love, of our call to love. The word, he says, the word of God, he says, is not perishable, but is imperishable. That's the same word that Peter used back in verse 4 to describe our inheritance. In other words, God's word is incorruptible. It cannot be altered or dismissed or destroyed. And Peter even quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8. You see there in verses 24 and 25. And he says there what God said through Isaiah in Isaiah 40, that God's word lasts forever. Everything in life perishes, like the grass perishes and the flower falls. But God's word is living and abiding. Therefore, it endures forever. That word in particular, Peter says, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 25, this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word of the gospel is living and powerful. It affected our spiritual transformation, resulting in a new spiritual birth. It brings us into spiritual life with eternal promises and blessings. The transformation that word brings to our lives then has staying power. It's not something that happens and comes and, and just does a work and then leaves, but it has staying power in our lives. Just as the Word is living and abiding, when it transforms us, it, it continues to live and abide with us so that we now live as transformed people. How do we continue to live out the salvation to which we've been called? It is by the living and abiding Word of God. And so a holy people live out the holy sanctification that God has given to them by God's living and abiding Word that is imperishable. And Peter ties that transformative work through the Gospel, right? This new spiritual birth that leads to abiding spiritual life. He connects that to loving one another. It's the precursor, right? This has to happen first. This transformation has to happen first before we can love one another. Notice in verse 23, the word since. The word since indicates result. In other words, the intended, expected result of having been born again is that we would love one another. Sanctified people, holy people, love their brothers and sisters in Christ. That is what happens. That should be normal for our lives. Even when we are under much duress, even when we, when we are under difficult duress, we should manifest a deep abiding love 
for the brethren. So the result of conversion and the goal of conversion is love. Love for God, of course, but also love for one another in the body of Christ. So love for one another is really not that hard to understand, right? We're spending a whole sermon talking about this. And it felt some ways, it's like, well, what do I say about that? When I got kind of started in this, what do I say about this for 40, 45 minutes? It's very simple. It's the basic message of Christian discipleship. And yet, as I began to do sort of the study and began to see all the different cross-references, I saw that the New Testament repeats this simple command over and over and over again. We hear it from Jesus, from Paul, from Peter, and from John. It's in every gospel, nearly every letter of Paul, and the flagship letters of Peter and John. Why? Why do we hear this basic message, this easy-to-understand message, over and over and over again? The only explanation I could come up with is because we have difficulty doing it. We would not... Think about just your own children, right? Why do you have to repeat yourself to your children so many times about certain things? It's because they don't get the message. There are simple commands we give to our kids, but for some reason there's a disconnect. They don't do what you've asked them to do, and so you repeat yourself over and over and over again. This is the basic message of the Christian life. It's the simple message of the Christian life. Yet it is one of the hardest things that we have to do as Christians, is to love one another. And Peter reminds us not simply to love others out of duty, but to love others because God has saved us for this purpose. Being holy in all of our conduct, Conducting ourselves with godly fear means, above all, that we will love one another. It brings us to the last question. How do we love one another? How do we love one another? Well, we see four things I think Peter highlights here. First, Peter says that we are to love one another earnestly. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. From a pure heart. And as Adam says, the call to worship, the word earnestly means fervently, intensely. In fact, the only other time this word is used in the New Testament was to describe the church's prayers for Peter when he was in prison. You remember that story in Acts 12? Peter's in prison, the church is gathering, and they're praying earnestly, fervently, intensely for Peter to be released. What does that mean? They prayed regularly, they prayed passionately, they prayed without ceasing. And so our love for one another should be like that, should be earnest. It should be regular, intentional, passionate, intense, fervent. It is, after all, the kind of love that God has shown to us. God's love for us is not a half-hearted, disinterested love. And neither should our love be for one another. Is that the kind of love that we are showing one another? Secondly, Peter says that we are to love one another sincerely. We're to love one another sincerely. In verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The word sincere in Greek literally means without hypocrisy. If you remember what the word hypocrisy in Greek language, it's the mask, right, that the actors put on when the actors would perform a Greek drama, 
They put the mask on so that you would separate the actual person from the character that they were playing. And so there was a, a double identity, if you will. There was the character and there was the real person, right? And so this idea of play acting, doing one thing and then doing something else, right? Being double-minded. This word sincerely means without hypocrisy, to be undisguised, to be unfeigned. Our love for one another then should be pure, genuine, real, authentic. And Peter uses the phrase later in verse 22, from a pure heart, that is from a heart that is untainted, a heart that doesn't have double motives, a heart that is genuine. So by connecting a pure heart with a purified soul, Peter is showing the consistency between these two things. God has cleansed us. He has purified our souls so that we could love one another from clean and pure and sincere hearts. Later in chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says that we should put away hypocrisy. Why should we put away hypocrisy? Because it interferes with God's holy purposes for our lives. It corrupts and destroys relationships in the body of Christ. It hinders the outworking of love in the body. And so we are to love one another sincerely. Third, we are to love one another without malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. See that in verse 1 of chapter 2. Peter provides for us a mini vice list that shows the corruption of, of unholy behaviors and how those unholy behaviors can have damaging effects on the relationships we have in the body of Christ. Malice refers to evil intent. It refers to a desire to harm or to injure. Deceit points to deception, to craftiness. It points to the intent to mislead or to trick. Hypocrisy, as we've already said, indicates play acting and duplicity. Putting on a show, not being genuine. Envy is ultimately selfishness. The desire for yourself what properly belongs to someone else. And slander is speaking poorly or harmfully about another person, even when what is said is true. So all these sinful vices can have the effect of damaging the relationships within the body of Christ. Love cannot flourish when people are acting in an unholy way. And when love cannot flourish, the purposes that God has for the church cannot flourish. And so once again, I hope that we're seeing this very integral relationship between holiness and love. Only when God's people are holy in conduct will they love. And only when love flourishes in the body does God accomplish His purposes in the church and magnifies its witness to the world. Peter says that we must put away all of these, these vices. We, these sins have no place in our lives. Why? Because God has purified our souls. He's cleansed us of our sins. We've been born again to a new way of life, a way of life in which these things are antithetical to that way of life. So we must put them away. I thought again, I'm not going to read it here, but Colossians chapter 3. If you get some time, spend some time in Colossians 3, verses 5 through like 15, where Paul goes into that in more elaborate detail. Putting away, putting off, putting to death that which is of the old sinful nature and putting on various Christian attributes chief of which, he says, is love. This act of putting away requires our participation, right? That's an imperative. Peter says, put away. He's commanding us again, giving us another command. We have the obligation to put these things away. And while we have been purified and while we have been born again to a new life, we still wrestle with the vestiges 
of the old life. And therefore, with the Spirit's help, we put away these things from us so that we are free to love one another. And then fourth, Peter says that we love one another by growing in spiritual maturity. We love one another by growing in spiritual maturity. Peter here is connecting, putting away the vices of the flesh with our own spiritual growth. And the implication is that when we are growing spiritually, we will love one another. And Peter uses the metaphor in verse 2 of, of newborn infants who long for the pure, spirit, the pure spiritual milk. And he used that illustration here not to imply the spiritual immaturity of his audience. He's just here simply trying to capture that desire for spiritual nourishment. That there should be a longing in us to want to grow spiritually. There should be a longing in us for us to, to feed upon God's Word and to be nourished by God's Word. We think about a baby and how a baby needs the nourishment of his mother, how he is eager for his mother's milk in order to sustain him. We think about the urgency that child feels. I mean, we, we all kind of been there. We've been around children who are, who are hungry, who want their mother's milk. They're, they're crying out for it. They're desperate for it. So also we should be that desperate, that earnest, that fervent, that desirous for the Word of God. For it is by God's Word that we are nourished. And by that nourishment we grow up into our salvation, he says in verse 2. We need God's Word to spiritually nourish us so that we can be holy, so that we can reflect more and more the character and attributes of Christ, so that we can imitate Christ. We're called to imitate Him. In fact, we're, Peter will say later on in chapter 4 that we're known by the name Christians, right? What's the word Christian mean? It means little Christ. In that time, it was a derogatory term. But it simply meant someone who looked like Jesus. Someone who imitated Jesus. And I hate the fact that the word Christian means so many things to so many different people. Because what it really means is to look and reflect like Jesus Christ. Which is what our goal should be. Which is what our, our aim should be in all things. How is, it that we, how is it that we reflect Christ in all things? It's by growing up spiritually. And to grow spiritually, we need God's Word. In fact, in verse 2 the word that is translated spiritual, is related to the word word in verse 25. Peter is playing on that idea that he's connecting here our spiritual growth to God's word. That it is only by God's word that we grow spiritually. The gospel which saves us is the same gospel by which our lives flourish. And so we need God's word. It's by God's Word that we are enabled to love one another. We cannot and will not love unless God's abiding and holy Word lives in us and abides in us to do the work that He intended to do. And like a baby who is nourished by his mother's milk, so also we will be nourished and strengthened to love one another when we feed off the living Word of God. So we love by growing in spiritual maturity. So do these characterizations these descriptions, do they characterize your life? Are they reflected in your life? Do you see these descriptions characterizing your love for one another? Do you love others earnestly? Do you love others sincerely? Do you love others without malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander? Are you growing spiritually so that your love for one another is evidence of your spiritual growth? 
And so it would be wise for us to consider how we are loving one another and to ask for God's help to love others in this way. In fact, that's how Peter closes this paragraph, with an encouragement for his readers to evaluate their lives. He says in verse 3, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Some of you may recognize that sounding of that word, that, that verse, Psalm 34, verse 8. At least Peter is paraphrasing it or alluding to it. And in fact, there are a lot of touch points between Psalm 34 and the letter of First Peter. Psalm 34 is a psalm about living faithfully in times of adversity. It's a psalm appropriate for Peter's audience. He says in verse 8, David says in Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And Peter's calling them to evaluate their lives. I don't think he's casting doubt on the genuineness of their faith. I think rather he's affirming it. I think he expects them to say, oh yes, we have tasted of the Lord. We have known that he is good. He is good. So Peter is encouraging them to continue to long for the pure spiritual milk for God's word. If they've tasted it and it's been good and it's been causing them to flourish in the Lord, that they are to continue to drink from that spiritual milk. He says essentially here, let God's word continue to have its good effect in your life. Let the word work God's holiness in you. By God's grace and power and truth, be holy in all of your conduct. By God's grace and power and truth, conduct yourselves with godly fear. And as you walk in God's holy way, love one another with a sincere heart. Holiness and love go together. And for God's holy people, the ultimate holy task which we are to undertake is to love one another. May God help us to love one another. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are thankful for the nourishment of your word. That Sunday after Sunday as we are exposed to it, that we are drinking from it. And even when it doesn't seem to be things that we remember or that we're constantly struggling with, we are reminded over and over that just as a baby continues to return to its mother for its milk, that we continue to come to your word and that by your grace we grow as a child grows. We're thankful, Father, you've given to us your word. We're thankful for its obligations and for its duties and for its commands. We want to obey this command, Lord. We want to love one another. But we're also thankful, Lord, it's not just a duty. It is your purpose. It is what you are working in us to do and to be. And so I pray, Father, you would help us. Help us to evaluate ourselves. Help us to see that you are good. Help us to see, Lord, that your ways are righteous, that you are a holy God. Help us to see this command in a fresh light. Help us to apply it, Lord, that your grace would be at work in our lives and in our church and that it would magnify our witness to the world. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.